The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. Yeah, just just to put a little bit more color on the bones of that uh, intro, um, you know, I, I... like the way that you describe yourself, uh, I think like the deeper you get into your career and the older you get and the less impressed with yourself life forces you to be, the more concise your summary of who you are becomes. It's kind of like when you start grad school and someone's like, oh, what is your dissertation going to be on? And like 30 minutes later, they're still wiping spit out of their hair. You know, and then by the time you get to the end of grad school, your answer is a single sentence and then they ask you to say more and you just say no. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I can't even remember what I was telling people about my dissertation when I first started grad school, but when I finished, I just said, it's about the foreign policy of the Washington administration. And then they said, interesting, tell me more, and I would change the subject. Um, I've written a couple of columns for the uh, National Review online lately, and um, the the byline that I gave them for myself was, Sam Negus is an independent educator, which is a euphemism for a teacher that doesn't have a job. Uh, Sam Negus is an independent educator... And basic dad, he lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so I'm, I'm rounding the corner uh, to 40 here. It's coming up really fast. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that'll do the job at this point, you know. So anyway, uh, so I, I, uh, as, as uh, Brad says here, in theory, my area of expertise insofar as I have one um, is uh, American history. And he, uh, he invited me to, to give this talk. I think it's, um, you know, my connection to Brad is through mutual friends uh, at Hillsdale College. And um, I think I'm here mostly because uh, the Davenant Institute is located in such a, a remote place uh, that there just aren't that many choices. So um, I'm, I'm available. I'm, pro- I'm proximate and available. That, that's my interpretation of why I'm here. Anyway, so I, I asked Brad, you know, what, what, do you, what do you want for this thing? And, and, and Brad said, um, you know, do something on your research. And um, uh, the less generous byline uh, by which I would describe myself uh, is a failed academic. Um, so uh, I, I haven't done any recent research. Um, not that I don't aspire to do any in future or wouldn't be happy for someone to pay me to do some, but I've been busy paying the bills lately uh, and um, not doing academic work. So I don't have any research. So what I decided to do was just use it as an excuse to do some reading and think about something that I wanted to think more specifically about. Um, And so my, my handout there starts with excerpts from the the Davenant mission statement on the internet, which um, you know maybe Brad and Michael haven't haven't uh, re- read since they uh, wrote it and, and hit publish. That's usually the way websites work. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Davenant House is apparently a center uh, for the retrieval of Christian wisdom from wherever wherever that's gone, um, for the renewal of building up of the contemporary church, uh, and seeks to bring together pastors, church leaders, scholars, grad students, businessmen, and public servants. I don't think any one of those describes me. Um, to build networks of friendship, I can do that. Collaboration, uh, I have been known to, uh, and explore what it means to Christian wisdom. So I just thought, look, let's let. I'm just going to talk about something that I'm interested in and not present myself as an expert, which is not what I'm doing here. Uh, 
just as, as an excuse to kind of do, do a bit of a thought exercise, I guess. Uh, so this is a subject of personal interest to me somewhat that I kind of every time I teach a Western history survey or a world history survey or something of this nature, you always start in the ancient Near East and, you, and it's like, you know, the third week of August and you know that by December you're going to be scrambling to uh, get to wherever you're supposed to finish and you're not going to make it. So like you have this mental clock that you're like, I can't spend more than two class sessions on ancient Sumeria. I got to go, 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 and uh, this is more or less all the exposure that I've that I've had directly to studying the ancient Near East is just familiarizing myself enough to be able to not sound like an idiot in a survey course with some kids that I'm I'm trying to get to Greece and Rome and the origins of the West and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but but every time I I, I interact with ancient uh, Mesopotamia or, or Egypt in a survey course, I, I always find myself wanting to know more, and the more just broadly historically literate I've become as I've gotten older and trained as a professional historian for a time and just reading books of of interest to me, um, the more my reading of the Bible, which is, you know, like I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, you know, I've I've spent my whole life around the Bible. Uh, You know, I was raised in in a very devout evangelical home and, you know, very familiar with the Bible, um, and and um, you kind of get older and become more historically literate and, and, and realize that this sort of real world of actual human history and then this, this kind of imagination land of the Bible, uh, we're actually the same place, right? And so, um, you know, the more and more I learn, little as it is about the ancient Near East, the more I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, well, that sounds just like exactly what I just read about ancient Babylonia, why would I? Why would I have ever thought that Israel was some exception to all of these other patterns in ancient Near Eastern history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you know, so so, what what do you do with that? And so I guess the the overarching question here, or the overarching kind of reason why I'm I'm interested in this is, you know, what what parts of Hebrew culture, religion, ideas uh, are just common to the ancient Near Eastern context that we find them in. Um, and which are not, because if we don't know the former, we won't grasp the profound significance of the latter, right? If you don't know what's just absolutely common, and we've all been there, I don't want to just rag on, on low church evangelicals here, because as I said, I, I grew up one, but we've all been in one of those absolute, well, I say one, we've probably been, I've been in hundreds, of those just freewheeling, no rules, no one's in charge, no one's remotely educated Bible studies, where you just sit around, open the Bible, and you just say, what do you think is going on in this passage? And someone's like, reads a verse, and is like, that is so profound. And actually, they're reading something that's not remotely profound. Okay? It's just a thing that was completely common to all ancient Near Eastern cultures. And it's utterly alien to us. So when we read the Old Testament, we're like, wow. And the people who wrote the Bible and the people to whom the Bible was, was written, that wouldn't be what jumps out at them. right? So what would jump out at them and, and why? I think that's, that, that's important. So I wanted to just pursue this this evening with specific regard to uh, temple construction and ideology, theology. Um, I've put a short bibliography of the three texts that I used to put this thing together here. Um, Michael Hundley's Gods and Dwellings, uh, CTR Haywood, The Jewish Temple, uh, a non-biblical source book. And then the, the main thing that I leaned on, uh, Victor Horowitz, I've built you an exalted house, temple building in the Bible in light of Mesopotamian and North Semitic writings. 
Uh, so those are just the three works that I've um, been reading through and thinking about the last uh, couple of weeks in, in preparation for this. And, and um, I'm just going to start by summarizing some of the things from Hundley's Gods and Dwellings. And those are the, the pictures that you have in the handout. Um, so, so obviously we're all intimately familiar with one um, ancient Near Eastern temple, which is, which is the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Um, what, what were some of the others like? So Egyptian temples, just broadly speaking, of course, Egyptian civilization lasts for like 3,000 years. So, you know, it's a very sweeping summary here. Um, but, but Egyptian temples tend to be set within more uh, crowded complexes, often encompassing multiple temples to different gods and sharing one walled complex uh, with palaces and other administrative royal buildings, uh, storerooms, etc., um, all kind of crowded in together. Um, often they would be built with numerous processional uh, avenues for liturgical rites parading up and down with the god or before the god. Um, there would be um, sections that were kind of crowded halls that were called um, uh, hyperstyle halls that have many, many um, pillars, more pillars than they need to actually support the roof. They would be painted and decorated, and so it would be like walking through a kind of painted forest uh, of, of, of trees. Um, and uh, you, you would have uh, hieroglyphic temple inscriptions all over the place explaining the rituals and contextualizing the rituals and giving background theology and mythology. Um, often these temples would be more elevated the farther in you go, and, and so the, the walkways would move up toward the central chamber of, of the gods, so you would be ascending uh, into heaven, and the decorative themes would be things related to creation, so it would be uh, water and chaos moving towards order uh, and and um, you know a constructed universe as you approached the god's chamber um, and many of them were organized on processional axes and that that there are a couple of pictures there uh, a design uh, of, of uh, floor print and also a photograph of the temple of Amun Ray at Karnak on your handout and you can see as you look up you can you can see from one end to the other of this massive so if you're in the crowd all the way off on the days when they open the great gates all the way through into the inner chamber of the god and they parade the god out even if you're kind of all the way off in the cheap seats you're looking up through this this long axis it's like you're looking into heaven right and the god is coming down this this hallway out of heaven towards you as you're surrounded by all of these um, adornments, uh, gold and silver gilding, uh, gems that make the place um, gleam and, and glow the closer you get to the God's chamber, like you're, you're you know, physically entering heaven. Um, Mesopotamian temples tended to be laid out in a more labyrinthine pattern. And so if you look at the third picture, that's a floor plan um, of uh, Sargon II's uh, capital city, uh, Dershurakin, uh, he built that in around about the 7th century BC or so. And item number three in that is um, his temple to uh, one of his gods or other that I might have indicated which on your handout and forgotten. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, the primary dwelling of the god would be a small room, a small interior chamber as far as possible and usually as many turns as possible away from the from the main gates. So it would be tucked away, um, like you, you have to kind of walk through this maze to get there. Uh, it would be enclosed in inaccessible darkness, and only the highest 
priests or king would ever actually go in there. Uh, most of the worship would be done in a kind of secondary antechamber with a table where the ritual meals would be laid out and, and, and the God would um, be brought out to commune with the priests uh, on behalf of the people in this sort of mediated space uh, b- between the two. Um, again, there would be elaborate decorations. They tended to be focused on these gates or portals between the spaces. And so you can think of, and I've put the, the fourth picture there, is the famous Ishtar Gate, which if you've ever been to the British Museum on Russell Square in London, um, in the Assyrian wing, they've got some incredible stuff there that we nicked from Egypt and various other places that didn't, didn't deserve to keep their own artifacts because they, um, you know, can't govern themselves and this kind of thing. It's all very Victorian. Um, anyway, we're keeping, we're keeping the world's artifacts safe for the rest of the world um, and uh, go to the British Museum. It's, it's a great day out. Uh, this, uh, this mock-up of the Ishtar Gate dominates the Assyrian wing of the British Museum, and, and it's incredible. Yeah. Wait a minute. I've seen the Ishtar Gate in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I no, the one, if it's, it may be a different one that I'm thinking of in the British Museum. I, I, I was pretty sure it was that one, but it's the one in the British Museum is a model. It's not the, not the original. Okay. Um, the original yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, it was, it was probably, we probably left it to them after the, after the war or something like that. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. Uh, yeah, no, there is a lot of, there is a lot of original, uh, a lot of original things in, in, um, in the British Museum. But whichever is the great gate, and I'm pretty sure it is that one because I, I recognize the look of it. But whichever is the great gate they have there, the one, uh, the one in Russell Square is, is a model. Um, so anyway, um, but you, you know, you see this, this, this is a gate in the walls of Babylon. Uh, so this is not a temple gate, but if you if you go into the the temples, uh, there's a gate like this decorated usually with um, with kind of heavenly figures that'll be these kind of mythological hybrid creatures uh, that we would be familiar with from amongst many other places in the Bible. You know the the, the sixth chapter of uh, of of Isaiah or like all of Daniel when there's just these like winged eyed horned lion tiger bear woman creatures just sort of wandering around saying stuff like sanctus 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 all the time um you know these kinds of creatures you know eagle eagle bull person lion adorning these gates sort of growling at you and 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 warning you hey it's about to get weird bro by the way your name has to be on the list or you can't get past it and every successive gate fewer and fewer people are allowed to go to go past and it gets weirder and weirder um so again constructed to suggest that you are literally moving in toward heaven um hittite and syrio-palestinian temples uh somewhat similar they tended to be simpler uh, than mesopotamian temples um those mesopotamian temples with a with a primary uh, source of external cultural influence um, but these are smaller, resource-poorer kingdoms, and so, uh, understandably, their most important buildings were uh, less elaborate. In Hattia, which is, um, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, again, it tended to be more like Egypt, where you would get a temple complex with a walled area and, and all different rooms and maybe multiple temples kind of um, jammed in together. There's a picture on the, on the handout of the famous Lion Gate and the walls of Hattusa, 
Um, if you've ever looked at any pictures of uh, ancient Near Eastern walls, you've probably seen that one. It's very famous um, just because the walls are still relatively complete, uh, it not having been uh, either fully raised to the ground or ever subsequently inhabited. So it, it just, just kind of stood there since it was abandoned sometime around about um, 1200 BC. Um, so again, you get this kind of sacred complex, storerooms, priestly dwellings, etc., all kind of put in together. One unique feature of Hattusian temples are windows in the god's inner sanctuary um, that were, it, it is believed that they were probably used to allow the king or, or additional priests and nobles to kind of look in and kind of participate in rituals and maybe also to allow the gods to see out to the heavens. Um, but uh, that, that, that's a unique feature. Syrio-Palestinian temples tended to be smaller still with just one great inner sanctuary surrounded by a great court and an outer wall. And that, of course, brings to mind immediately, I'm sure, the picture of the Jerusalem temple, right? Um, didn't have the resources to build anything as big, labyrinthine, elaborate, multiple um, temples. And sometimes they would even be off outside the city. And so the last pictures I have there is the Temple of Bel in uh, Palmyra, Syria, uh, which is which is much newer. It was only built actually in the Roman period, Roman Syria that was built in 32 AD. Uh, but as you see, it's actually outside the main city um, district uh, just across the, uh, just outside the, the, the wall. It's kind of freestanding um, temple zone in a field just outside the main, uh, the main city. But Syrio-Palestinian temples would be built high. They would typically be built on high ground and the inner sanctuary would be raised above the, the exterior walls. And again, you're thinking of the Jerusalem temple. Um, and the, the outer court would be used for mass popular worship um, Mass popular worship is, seems to have been a bit more important in Syria-Palestine. Um, it was more important in Egypt than in Mesopotamia, where it doesn't seem to have been important at all. But for the most part, um, none of these temples existed primarily, uh, even in Jerusalem. Even though you read the Old Testament and there's all these passages that say, and then the people cheered and the people worshipped and the people bowed down. But for the most part, um, ancient Near Eastern temples... Uh, tend not to exist primarily for mass public worship. Um, and that's one of the ways that the Jewish temple is, is actually a little different um, because for the, for the most part, um, ritual sacrifices in which the, the popular masses participate can be done at other lesser sites or even at home with the household votive gods, right? You don't need to go to the main cult center. Uh, the, the, the Jewish insistence on having a single cult center for all of the nation's worship and, and requiring all Jewish men to make multiple pilgrimages per year to the one and only permitted uh, site in Jerusalem is, uh, is kind of the, the, one of the unique features of Jewish religion. Um, sacrifices, uses of the temple. Sacrifices, of course, are to honor the gods, to gain their favor, uh, to mediate between uh, them and the people. Uh, for communication to the gods, getting answers and so on. Um, annual feast liturgies uh, are important in the life of the state, but the most important thing that goes on there is just daily devotional service to the resident idol. Um, morning meals, evening meals, waking him up, putting him back to bed, 
uh, changing his clothes. And, and the priests would literally dress these idols, right? They, they, they put meals before them. They put clothes on them. They took the clothes off. They washed them. They bathed them. Uh, it's a very anthropomorphic uh, religion. So this is, this is from um, Hundley, Gods in Dwellings, about the uses of temples. Uh, since the gods were the supreme powers in the universe, understood to control the uncontrollable, humans naturally sought to secure divine favor so as to find some security in an otherwise insecure world. More than simply being unavoidable, primarily anthropomorphic conceptions of deity were also profitable. They made the otherwise incomprehensible deities more comprehensible and provided the assurance that gods could be communicated with and respond in ways analogous to humans. Nevertheless, communication was not always easy since the gods were rarely directly uh, rarely directly manifested themselves to humanity in the human sphere except through mediated forms. The temple, and more particularly its cult image, served as an ancient Near Eastern solution to the need for contact and commerce with otherwise distant deities. Regardless of how one envisaged the exact relationship between deity and statue, the divine cult image functioned as the terrestrial locus of the divine presence. In the cult, the statue was treated like a god, constructed of materials befitting a god, addressed as such, and lavished with bounteous gift and attention. And, and um, again, uh, the, the word for temple and the word for house are exactly the same. Right? There is no distinct... We make a distinction, but that didn't exist in any ancient Near Eastern culture. The word for temple was just house of, insert name of God. Um, so the god literally lives there. Uh, so what, what's the theology of the ideology... Um, the Egyptians thought of a person in five parts. Uh, the most significant parts are the Ba, B-A, and the Ka, K-A. Um, the Ba is the name or the power or the reputation of a person, and the Ka is the living essence which departs to the underworld upon death. And there's no strict analogy here uh, that we have to work with. The best one might be something like the, um, the bar being a kind of platonic essence or form that exists off in this, in this world and anchors the person to the world of the eternal, um, whereas the car would be something more like the soul uh, or, the, or the spirit. Uh, but the car needs to eat and drink and do all of the human physical things. It's not physical, uh, but it will die without that connection to a physical body, which is one of the other three parts. Um, and so the Egyptians thought of the god's car coming to indwell the idol and live in the temple, but the bar remained in the, the realm of the gods. And all ancient Near Eastern cultures more or less have some version of the same concept. And there's another concept that, that they all share, which the Egyptians call mat, M-A-A-T, which is integrity or order or justice in the world. Uh, and the gods alone assure and sustain this. Um, and so all ancient Near Eastern peoples, in one way or another, view the universe in analogous terms, that temples are the places where ritual worship participates in upholding the order of the universe by rendering the gods proper and necessary personal service, which because their car is there, they literally need to eat or they'll die, right? And if you let them die... The universe is going to unravel, which is, which is totally bad, I guess. I've never seen it, but it sounds awful. Um, so again, from Hundley, practically, the statue was understood to be the god. More precisely, uh, through the medium of ritual and participation of the gods, the statue and the deity symbolically joined such that the statue and all it contained became the deity. 
Uh, although people and scholars could theoretically distinguish between the statue and the deity, and he means modern scholars there, because no ancient Near Eastern scholar would have asked such a question, um, there was little practical impetus to do so, uh, as the effective presence of the deity on earth was often, and often as the only god within reach, people tended to identify the statue, deity, symbiosis, as their god and treat it accordingly with care and petitions, even if they theoretically envisioned the god as far more than its image. The theoretical distinction likely touched down in reality only when the situation rendered maintaining that connection unpalatable. And that precisely would be uh, what happens if um, barbarians get into your city and nick off with your gods. Now you have to engage with the question of, well, is that really the god or not? Because it's a bit inconvenient if the answer is yes. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, but so importantly here then, strictly speaking, strictly speaking, I'm not going to be very, very fair to, uh, well, not fair, but I'm going to be a bit hard on, on the Jews now. It's probably not, not a very good place to take a pause, is that? <laughs> the worst, the worst possible moment I could have paused for a drink since I started. Um, so strictly speaking, the Jewish caricature of pa- their pagan neighbors, um, found most pointedly in Psalm 115, verses 2 through 9, is a bit of a straw man, right? Um, Wherefore say that, shall say the heathen, where now is their God? Um, as for our God, he's in heaven. He hath done whatsoever pleased him. Their idols are silver and gold, even the work of men's hands. They have mouths and speak not. Eyes have they and see not. Ears have they and hear not. Noses have they and smell not. They have hands, they handle not. Feet have they, but walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, and all such as put their trust in them. But thou, house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their helper and defender, right? Um, Rousing rhetoric, um, beautiful psalm, um, expresses a core idea. As I said, it's a bit of a straw man, because technically the ancient Near Eastern neighbors didn't think of their idols as their actual god, but at a, a location where the god would sort of conveniently park a part of his or herself for, for as long as the relationship worked out, right? Um, again, a distinction that no one probably really bothered to make very much in the ancient Near East. Um, nonetheless, the absence of a, of a divine cult idol in the Jerusalem temple would absolutely have been the most obvious point of interest to any other ancient Near Eastern person who went in there, right? That, that's still important. You walk in there and be like, where's your God? I'm like, well, he's not here. What? Your God abandoned your temple? What did you do? And they're like, well, well, he actually did do some bad stuff, but he wasn't here anyway. Uh, okay, explain, right? Um, so how do, we, how, do we, how do we even know a lot of this stuff? So archaeology can tell us a good bit about temples and how they were built. It tells us less about how they were used, and it tells us even less than that about how their builders or caretakers imagined them, thought about them. It doesn't tell us very much about temple ideology at all. So most knowledge of this type comes from uh, temple narratives or inscriptions found either engraved on the building themselves or on cylinders or tablets in archives or dug up in other random places like um, you know, shepherd boys throwing rocks into caves. Um, and until the advent of modern Near Eastern studies, approximately simultaneously with Napoleon's uh, ill-conceived idea of invading Egypt uh, in the early 19th century, uh, the West's only such model was the Old Testament, right? And this is, it, it is really remarkable how recently um, 
scholars have really known anything about the ancient Near East that doesn't come from from the Bible. Um, and so one of my one of my questions is to kind of get back to the the whole purpose of Davenant and why I chose this subject. Um, you know, one of kind of my my questions here that I'd like to have us talk about in discussion time is how can or should Orthodox believers use ancient Near Eastern studies and textual parallels to the Bible, right? Like, what do you do when you encounter the undeniable fact that there are numerous examples, um, and this is only the fragments that have survived, of literature in other ancient Near Eastern cultures that are very like whole swaths of the Bible, right? Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm certainly not going to answer that question uh, for you, but I might sort of hint it the way I've... So I think about this thing, um, but anyway, we'll come back around to that. But, you know, just to sort of start us off in that direction, uh, gross oversimplification, if for no better reason than I don't know enough to do more than grossly oversimplify this thing. Um, you know, archaeological study of the ancient Near East uh, led to the rise of uh, textual critical studies of the Bible, uh, based primarily, or at least initially, in the, in the 19th century at German universities, um, and, and if you're not familiar with what we mean by textual critical scholarship of the Bible, the, 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 uh, the, the basic idea, the basic framework is that the Bible is put together from multiple different sources, um, which to some extent it undeniably is because there are certain points in the Bible where it explicitly makes that clear because there's an editorial comment that can't have been in the original. The most obvious example is if you read Genesis 21, um, the writer of Genesis will tell you that Abraham is sacrificing Isaac on, on the mountain that will become the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, how would Moses have known that, right? Someone wrote that after the putative author of Genesis. I'm not saying that Moses didn't write Genesis. I, I, I don't know that. Um, but, but, you know, it, it, the Bible was, none of the books of the Bible were written all at one time by only one person, or, or many of them seem not to have been. Um, that's seems clear enough but the the so this this school of thought comes up and there there are innumerable versions of this that i'm unfamiliar with but uh, you know the the textual critical scholarship broadly speaking as a as a way of approaching history kind of dates back to uh, leopold von ronke in the um 1800s mid 1800s uh, and the first person to pioneer this in biblical scholarship uh, was heinrich holtzman and this this school of thought, broadly speaking, is known as source-critical scholarship. And the idea is that there are at least four main sources of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, known as the Yahwist, the Deuteronomist, the priestly source, and then a post-exilic chronicler. Um, and that, that you can kind of go through and figure out which parts of which you can sort of uncopy and paste and sort of separate them out. Um, I'm not going to go into uh, those theories and different ideas and et cetera, et cetera, because I just don't know enough about it. I, I really don't. I know enough to know that this is, this is a thing, and then I read my Bible and can see, yeah, you know, I, I, I can, I can see, see some of that. But um, I'm just kind of introducing that as, as a, a, a sort of background for why this, this is important to think about, um, because thinking of the Bible as compiled over long periods of time by various sources, successively edited and borrowing literary styles from um, the surrounding cultures, or even maybe the parent cultures, depending on, on you know, how you, you think about it, 
had a tendency in the 19th century and into the 20th century to produce agnostic and atheistic reactions, um, especially to Reformation-era ideas of scriptural inerrancy. Um, and, you know, um, the idea of scriptural inerrancy, uh, you know, is, is kind of a, a didactic, or we might even say polemical, term rooted in the Reformation, which then in the Western Protestant tradition has been subsequently filtered through post-Enlightenment rationalism, such that the, the term is loaded with a whole slew of concepts that may be useful in the right context, but if you simply sort of apply them forcefully without thinking about it to the Old Testament... Uh, they they won't fit, right? Um, what, what do I mean by that? The, the Hebrew Bible is not a modern text. It, the presuppositions of its authors, the presuppositions of its first readers, the way that it's constructed um, just don't fit what Western, Protestant, post-Enlightenment rationalists mean when they say, is this thing the truth, right? It seems like a simple question. Is this thing the truth? But what you, how you define the truth is loaded with presuppositions that it, if this text doesn't share, um, and I should probably just make, make clear for those of you who are sitting there already thinking this, I listen to a lot of Bible Project podcasts. Um, so if you also listen to the Bible Project podcast, you're like, this guy's ripping all this stuff from the Bible Project. Partly true. Uh, that's partly true. But uh, Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy, um, lo- he talks about, they have a great series at the moment. They're, they're about two-thirds of the way through this series, on a seven-part series on their paradigm, um, explaining the different parts of how they think about the Bible. And it, it, it's, it's excellent stuff. And one of the things that uh, Tim Mackey likes to talk about is uh, this this word um, in the Hebrew Bible that's best translated trustworthy, that the scriptures are true. Uh, and, and he always says that the, the better translation would be trustworthy um, because it's less loaded with some of these kind of Western Protestant post-Enlightenment concepts. Um, what does it mean for something to be, to be trustworthy? Um, and, and some of the ways that I've started to think about this uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into dangerous waters here because I'm using words that I only like half know the meaning of, which is the good thing is this is leading towards a discussion. So I'm, I'm just throwing a bunch of things out there. I'm hoping you guys are going to be like, hey, I actually know something about that. I'll be like, do tell. I'm not claiming to know anything about it. But narrative theology, right? And, and I, I think about um, C.S. Lewis's short essay, uh, Myth Became Fact, right? The idea that um, the biblical story is the story of stories, right? Like if... Uh, and just to give you a completely trivial, but I think you know, potent example, right? Harry Potter, right? Why why is the Harry Potter story a great story? It's a great story. It's well written, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know what happens at the end? Harry dies, but then he comes back to life. Ah! Spoiler. He's three chapters in the end, right? He's he's probably figured it out, <laughs> uh, right? I mean, they tell it. It tells you in the first chapter, right? The boy who lived. He's the boy who lived. That's the whole point. Anyway, um, all right. He's got a scar. He's got a scar from when he died, but he didn't die. Anyway, you know. All right. So, all right. Sorry, sorry. I've ruined your childhood, Soren. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let myself out. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the the story of stories, right? Um, this this idea that um, 
the, the, the Bible is a collection of stories that makes one big story. And even more than that, it, it communicates to us something metaphysical that is itself a story that, that in one way or another, almost all human stories will communicate with this because it, it draws from the deepest desire of the human soul, which is the deepest desire of the human soul because it points to something that's fundamentally true, right? The greatest need of all for, for a, a lost person to be saved by a, a capable savior. Uh, and, and that somehow death and, and blood are the means by which this is done, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little off here. Uh, something else that, that, that has been helpful to me lately is, is N.T. Wright's work on Paul and, and kind of um, recovering a, a first century Jewish reading of Paul uh, and, and not that N.T. Wright is anti-Reformation, but he, as he always says or writes, you know, Luther asked Paul the questions that Luther needed to ask Paul in the time and place that Luther was, was in. And, and so the answers weren't wrong. Uh, but just because that's Luther's reading of Paul doesn't necessarily mean that that is Paul, right? So what, what is Paul's gospel in, understood in its first century concept, context? That Jesus is the Messiah that all of the Old Testament scriptures point to if you're a Jew. And if you're a Gentile, Jesus is the king of kings who's conquered all of the fake kings who aren't gods at all, but, but demons. Um, and he is the, the vanquisher and he's the only king, the only God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, um, and a, a revolution has taken place in the spiritual world. And if you read Paul, it's, and this stuff is just hiding in plain sight, um, uh, and this is, this is where having been a Pentecostal for a few years kind of is, is helpful. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend it for a lifetime, but um, <laughs> the, the, there's some good things to be gleaned from spending your time with people who like see demons and angels in, in all the shadows and bright places. Like people who really believe that the spiritual world is real, right? Because we all, we all do, or what are we doing, right? Like if you're a Christian, you really, either you believe that the, the spiritual world is the true world, or you're doing it wrong. Like those are your only two options, mm-hmm. right? Like it, uh, but we're also Westerners and, you know, sort of, relatively brainy westerners and even as christians this makes us uncomfortable we're like well yes i do believe that but can we talk about something else as quickly as possible (laughs) right um and so if if the spiritual world exists and these these spirits and principalities and powers are really there and they come to mankind and command worship would wouldn't there be consistent patterns in how they command worship does that make sense right because there are real powers whatever they are i don't know behind these these gods and so you would see real patterns anyway i, I i'm like wading way off into waters that i don't know what i'm talking about but this is that that's just my fumbling attempt to sort of get around to okay what what are we how can it be helpful for us to to think um about the ancient near east in these uh, in these kind of textual critical ways without losing our orthodoxy right um anyway we'll, we'll come back around to that more later um anyway to get back to horowitz uh horowitz identifies a pattern in uh temple narratives that follows uh 
a roughly six-part sequence and that is fairly consistent through uh, all the different time periods and geographic locations in the ancient Near East. Um, Firstly, the decision to build. The divine approval is is sought for the build project and then is uh, is given. Um, In several sources, some kind of opposition or rebellion would follow here, although that doesn't happen um, often enough for it, it, it to be kind of part of the standard model as far as Horowitz is concerned. Uh, so the next part then is preparation for the build. Materials are gathered, workmen found, foundations laid. Uh, then three, a description of the construction process, materials, buildings, furnishings, etc. is given. Four, the temple is dedicated. There are rituals and festivals. Uh, that's followed five by a dedication prayer. And then six, divine revelation or the, the entrance of the God, the response of the God, uh, and then promises and blessings or possibly curses for the future are given. And these categories are all aggregated, right? So um, very few narratives uh, contain perfect examples of each. None uh, of, of the, the examples that we have failed to conform to any of them. Otherwise, we wouldn't recognize them as examples of the genre. Um, but uh, these, you know, most examples have some, um, most or even, even all of these kind of six sections. Um, so what I want you want to do here, uh, what time did I, what time did I get going? About 20 past 7? I think, thereabouts. Um, so we'll, we'll do this and then, and then see how much time we have. I, I've, as you see from the abundant materials in your, in your uh, handout here, I kind of erred on the side of over-preparing. I uh, figured I'd just bring a whole bunch of stuff and see how much I had to, to get through. And if you're particularly interested, you can take the packet home and, and look at it more closely um, on your own time, or we can go into some of the stuff there in the, in the discussion time. But anyway, um, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through these six parts with some examples from ancient Near Eastern inscriptions, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll look at some Jewish sources that, that uh, parallel those, and we'll do as much as we have time for, and then, and then when the hour is up, I'll, I'll um, kind of conclude with some of the discussion questions I wanted to, to throw at you. But uh, starting with the decision to build and, and the, the uh, seeking of divine approval, um, so uh, Isa Haddon, the Neo-Assyrian king of the mid-700s, uh, restored uh, Ishara, the temple of Asa, or Asa or Asha, uh, in the city of Asha, uh, which is on the west bank of the Tigris in northern Iraq. Uh, this is part of his uh, rebuilding narrative. The, the previous temple of Asher, which uh, Ushpaya, my forefather, priest of Asher, had built long ago, collapsed. Uh, and Ereshum, the son of Shuma Ailu, my forefather, priest of Asher, rebuilt it. 126 years passed and it fell into ruin again. And Shamshi Adad, the son of Ailu Kapkapi, my forefather, priest of Asher, rebuilt it. 434 years passed and this temple was destroyed by fire. Uh, Shalmaneser, the son of Adad-Narari, my forefather, priest of Asher, rebuilt it. 580 years passed. And the cellar, seat of Asher, my lord, Kabu's temple, the temple of Daibar, the temple of Ea, became weak, old, and ancient. I was afraid and worried to restore the temple, and so I was negligent. By means of the bowl of the liver diviner, Shamash and Adad addressed me, answered me with a firm yes and caused it to be written in the liver, an instruction to build the house and restore the temple. So the king doesn't dare to undertake a temple rebuild project or a restoration project or or an initial build on his own initiative. The command 
uh, that he needs might come directly, such as in a dream, or it might come indirectly through a third party, such as a priest or a prophet. Um, but the decision then is typically ratified with auguries, which it usually means chopping up something and having a look at its insides. Um, good times. Uh, approval also might be withheld. That's important, although we only know this from references in inscriptions to previous kings who were told not to do it because nobody ever wrote an inscription themselves proclaiming that they didn't build a temple. It's just the temple build inscriptions always start with, the last guy didn't do it for this reason. And some biblical bells should be ringing in your head right now. Um, so, for example, an, a, another example, uh, an inscription uh, of Esarhaddon's son Asabanapal. Uh, relates the rebuilding of Ishtar's temple in Nineveh. Uh, the goddess had abandoned the temple, but she was later reconciled to the city and its people and sought to return um, so that she's got to be, you know, have her space made ready. Uh, and and uh, uh, Esarhaddon's, uh, or Asabanapal's inscription uh, reads, In order to complete her august divinity and glorify her most precious rites through dreams, the business of ecstatics, she kept on sending me messages constantly. So it's like, getting text messages from Ishtar who's like, hey, hey buddy, I'm ready to come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter at Fontes or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.